Ladies and gentlemen, you are listening to the Two Guys Talking Podcast Network. Thank you. Welcome to the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast hosted by me, Dr. Mark Halstead. I cover current hot topics and recent research in the world of the young athlete relevant to healthcare professionals. This is the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast. Sports medicine doesn't just apply to the organized sports we see at a park, field, or in a gymnasium. The great outdoors is the greatest playground in existence. Being active with hiking, backcountry running, mountain biking, climbing, kayaking, whether in a competitive setting or not, brings its own unique challenges. Today on the podcast, we are going to take you out of your typical comfort zone in the clinic or training room and discuss some important things to think about if you cover outdoor competitive events or if you like to get a little adventurous on your own. It's time to talk wilderness medicine. I'm Dr. Mark Halstead, your host, and this is the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast. Today on the podcast, my guest is Dr. Andrew Gregory. He is an associate professor of orthopedics and pediatrics at Vanderbilt Children's Hospital in Nashville, Tennessee. He obtained his medical degree from the University of Alabama, Birmingham, where he also completed his pediatric residency. His sports medicine fellowship was through ASMI, the American Sports Medicine Institute. He is the co-director of the Vanderbilt Sports Concussion Program and also directs their sports medicine fellowship. He serves as a team physician for Nashville Christian School, Vanderbilt University, the Nashville Soccer Club, and USA Volleyball's national team. He has been involved with numerous national organizations, including USA Football, the American Academy of Pediatrics, and the American Medical Society for Sports Medicine. But I'm most excited to have him on as he's my good friend and was my sports medicine fellowship director. I've affectionately referred to him as the mountain man, and if you've ever seen him in the full bloom in the winter with his beard, you'd understand why. He loves everything about the outdoors. Welcome to the podcast, Andrew. Thanks, Mark. Thanks for having me. So wilderness medicine, there's a lot we can un- certainly unpack today. I know it wasn't an area that was discussed much during my fellowship, and that's no no downplay on you, but I'm not sure it's an actual requirement for fellowship programs to discuss it. But as a sports medicine doctor, certainly it seems like an area we should cover. I couldn't think of a better person to help us navigate this topic. So let's start off with just giving our listeners what actually is wilderness medicine. I think it's a great question and one that if you're not familiar with the topic comes up a lot. You can't set up a clinic in the wilderness. So how do you make this work? So I was first exposed to this when I was a medical student and I did a rural medicine rotation in Jackson, Wyoming, and we did a hiker's clinic at one of the lodges near Yellowstone National Park. And we saw hikers who came in with all kinds of injuries, whether that's a bee sting or a a blister or a sprained ankle, and sometimes, you know, animal encounters with things like bears. It's a myriad of things and, and it's very regional. Obviously, I don't live out west. I live in the southeast. And so we have unique environmental problems. We'll talk about some today. We have unique plants and and animals that you have to be concerned about encounters with. So there are some really common things that we all run into that it's worth us knowing more about. One of the cool things about wilderness medicine is they are researching these things just like they are in other areas of medicine. And so it can give us true kind of Uh, proven treatments and things as as opposed to just, hey, I heard this from a friend who said it works kinds of things, which happens a lot in in wilderness medicine. For sure. It's it's got its own little niche. I mean, I know there's a couple of organizations that are out there that actually truly do go into the whole thing of wilderness medicine. There's a couple big conferences I know that typically are there for wilderness medicine. Can you talk about those a little bit? Yeah. The organization that, that I'm a part of that I would highly recommend if you have further interest in this area is called 
the Wilderness Medical Society. And they do have traditionally a annual meeting in the winter and then a separate one in the summer. And they cover all these specific topics in great detail. There's also regional meetings and even location-specific meetings. So they have like dive medicine and they have high-altitude medicine on location. So some pretty cool places to have meetings. And then there's more local resources. So you can do some wilderness medicine training if you are you know, working with kids and camping and stuff like that. You can do wilderness first responder training. Or if you just want to do some personal training, Knowles, which is a national outdoor leadership group, does wilderness medicine training as well. Great. We'll have make sure to have some links to those organizations in our show notes so that you can look to those and have access to those easily. But let's just kind of start with the basics. Or what are some of the common things that we're going to come across as problems that you may see in wilderness medicine? Unlike some of the interesting things like animal encounters, the common things are common things that you might encounter any place. And so sports medicine not unlike wilderness medicine, but I say wilderness medicine is like the most extreme sports medicines. Some of the things I mentioned, like a sprained ankle or a blister or a sunburn, that if you are kind of taking care of at home is not a big problem. But if you're on a backpacking trip and you got several more days of hiking or exposure, then it can be a real problem. And so what seemingly are relatively small problems, if you are at a place with a lot of resources, can be much more problematic in the wilderness. I tend to think of wilderness medicine as being a little bit like being a Boy Scout just with more medical training. And it was funny when I mentioned to one of my sons the other day who actually is a Boy Scout, and I said I was going to do a thing on wilderness medicine. He goes, oh, you mean Boy Scouts? And I said, no, not really, but but kind of what I was thinking to begin with. We need to be aware of and respectful of the outdoors and realizing that we're competing for space and homes of wild animals and other critters, as well as just the environment in general. A big safety concern is that of the risk of lightning injuries. Fortunately, obviously, there's unique times when those are going to happen, and we can kind of have an idea, but not always. But I think it's a good crossover topic to sports medicine, as this does come into play when we're talking about outdoor competitive events, whether it's a soccer game, a football game, a baseball game, a cross-country race, and why we need to be aware of lightning, especially since it is one of the leading causes of environmental death in the United States. Can you tell us a little bit about lightning injuries? Yeah, first of all, I'll just uh, echo what you said about uh, the Boy Scouts, that, that I was a Boy Scout and did my first aid training in the Boy Scouts and became an Eagle Scout. And I will say that was a good background for me, not only for medicine, but even for wilderness medicine, that it is really one of the first times you talk about it. And I learned a lot about things that I use now from my time in the Boy Scouts. But as far as lightning... In the southeast, it it is a real problem in the summer because of thunderstorms. And for us in sports medicine, when our events are happening, it comes into play. But also, if you're just out uh, doing physical activity outside, it's something you should be aware of. And I think most people realize the danger if you are in the middle of of a storm. but, But really, the biggest danger is right before the storm happens and right after the storm occurs. And and the reason is lightning can travel a long distance. And so I think too often, and I've had personal experience with it, where people don't want to cancel the game and are hopeful that the storm is going to move in another direction and then wait too long to cancel it or or try to start it too soon before. So you may be familiar with the 30-30 rules, which is if you see lightning and you count in seconds, if the lightning is within 30 seconds of the thunder, when you hear the clap, 
then that's within six miles and you should be canceling your event. And then once you've had lightning within six miles, you need to wait 30 minutes until the last strike of lightning that's within six miles. So that's the 30-30 rule. You see lightning, you count to 30. Before you hear thunder, that's over six miles. If it's less than 30, you need to stop whatever it is you're doing and, and seek shelter for at least 30 minutes after the last strike. And there are some good apps that are out there for when you're covering events. Certainly, obviously, a lot of those may not work so well when you're out in the wilderness if you don't have uh, coverage from your cell phone or what have you. But we'll put some links to some of those types of apps that are out there, too, for lightning detectors, because I think that's an important resource to have. You know, we think about lightning strikes and everybody is like the whole big problem is getting actual struck by lightning, which is rare. But a lightning strike itself, it doesn't always have to cause a problem just from a direct strike. Can you talk about some of the ways that lightning may affect you that is not just getting hit by lightning? Yeah, you're exactly right. The two most common ways you get affected is if you are standing close to an object that gets struck and that's called a side splash. So the most common one is a tall tree. So people are taking shelter. Uh, underneath a tall tree so they don't get wet maybe the worst place during a lightning storm because if the lightning strikes the tree goes down to the tree to the ground it may jump over through your body to get to the ground because it's easier and then if the lightning strikes the ground near you you can get current that passes through you while you're touching the ground and so those are both two of the more common ways. They are not the most deadly as a direct strike, but certainly more common. So I think understanding that is helpful in you figuring out, hey, where should I be going that's safe during a lightning storm? How about, you know, if someone does get struck by lightning or they've had one of those side splash incidents, is it okay to actually touch them? I know that obviously everybody gets concerned that the person now may be electric and it's not a good thing to touch them. Yeah. So that's a very common misconception that that if if somebody's struck that you shouldn't touch them or it might affect you. And the reality is the, the lightning strike happens in less than a second and the charge is gone and they don't carry any residual charge. And that lightning does strike twice. And so the worst thing you could do is leave somebody in an area where they could get struck again. So you really want to get them out of that area to a safe place. And then one of the injuries that lightning causes is a damage to the electrical systems of the body. So the, the two primary ones being your brain and your heart. One of the things that, that is a, an important concept with lightning injury is if, if you see somebody down, that's the person who needs your help. If you see somebody who's kind of holding their head or kind of walking around and moaning, that's not the person that needs immediate help. And the reason is that your heart stops. And so if you can provide uh, compressions while the heart is stopped, then when your breathing restarts, which is when your brain gets rebooted, that happens quicker than your heart restarting. But if you give them compressions in the meantime, then, then the outcome is quite favorable. Uh, again, it's safe to touch them and they probably should be removed from that dangerous environment. And if they are not responsive, no pulse, then you should start compressions immediately. It's a good point to bring up is that, you know, obviously, you know, when we think about triaging things of someone who already looks dead, we say, let's move on. But in this situation, it is the person you want to prioritize. You know, you mentioned kind of moving somewhere safe. You're out in the outdoors and you you kind of talked about the side splash with the tall trees. What, what would you consider to be a safe place to go if it's a lightning storm and you're caught in one in the outdoors? The real problem for us in the outdoors is is in the mountains. One of the principles in, in mountain climbing or hiking outdoors is that you should summit before lunch 
so that you're on your way down when the afternoon thunderstorms roll in because you don't want to be high up. Seeking low ground is a, a really good principle. The other is that the common things we see in the southeast is, is lightning strikes on golf courses. A kind of structure that you need is a structure that's grounded. So if the structure has either uh, electricity or, or indoor plumbing, you've got metal pipes that go into the ground and you have metal wires that go into the ground. That's a safe structure for you to be in. Whereas a golf shelter that doesn't have any metal piping or electricity is probably not safe for you because you're in the tallest structure around. It's better to get wet than get struck by lightning. So you kind of touched a little bit about the electrical system and how that gets affected your body for your heart and the brain, but what other ways can lightning affect the body? Yeah, so there are lots of interesting things about lightning injury. The most sort of well-known, I would say, is the, the skin damage that you see called ferning. When you get struck by lightning, it has this classic ferning appearance that almost looks like a, a Boston fern that might hang in your, your house. That's pathognomonic. If you ever see that on somebody's skin, you know they've been struck by lightning. And then the other really strange phenomenon that happens with lightning strike is that you can get paralysis of your lower extremities. And so not only does it look very mottled and pale, touch it, and they, they, they can't feel it. And this is a temporary phenomenon, but can be very disturbing to the patient and to you as a clinician if you see it. But it is unique to lightning strike, and it does self-resolve. Do you know why it just affects the lower extremity? It, it is a strange phenomenon that has something to do with the sympathetic nervous system that is not well understood. Hmm. Interesting. How about kind of some other things? I know in some of your talks, you talk about the eyes and the ears and how they can get affected too from a lightning strike. Certainly, classically, when we had more landline telephones, there were a lot of injuries to people's ears where the lightning would travel down the telephone line into the phone. And so you'd get rupture of the tympanic membrane and, and blood coming out of your ear. Blindness is not unusual after lightning strike. That, that is also a temporary phenomenon. You can see people who develop cataracts later. The other really strange thing that can happen is that you can have a personality change. So number one, people tend not to remember when they've been struck by lightning. So they're struck and they're kind of wandering around aimlessly, but they can't really tell you what happened to them. But then also sometimes their, their personality is affected. And we saw this in one of our baseball players from one of the schools that we took care of. That you never really could finish school again because you just couldn't get motivated to do so. There are some longer standing effects that happen with lightning strike. You touched a little bit on some of the things we already talked about, uh, just kind of what we need to do to triage and, and some ways to prevent any sort of consequences from being around lightning or lightning strike. Any other points that you want to bring up? There is something called a lightning safe position, which is, again, if you're out in the open and there is no kind of low ground or a structure with indoor plumbing is to squat down so that you aren't the tallest object, to get on your toes so that your feet are not in contact with the ground any more than they have to be, and that you want your feet close together. So if your feet are spread apart, then sometimes the lightning is more likely to pass through your body. So they also recommend that you cover your ears to protect your ears against injury. So that is what is referred to as a lightning safe position. So I'll know that if I'm ever out in the outdoors, that I need to be in the outdoors with you because you are very tall. And so even squatting down, you still will be the tallest object that's out there. So I'll be safe. But then you need to watch out for the side splash. <laughs> oh, darn it. <laughs> I thought I could be protected somehow. 
Well, in keeping up with the environment, we need to talk about issues related to temperature. I'm, we're going to do a whole upcoming episode on heat illness. And so let's focus on the opposite side of that, of when the temperature gets low and, and hypothermia. Hypothermia is a, is a real concern in, in the outdoors, and that is typically related to getting wet, not just to getting exposed to cold, but, but to being wet as well. And so we think of hypothermia, particularly if you live in the northern climates, people are much more aware of it, but it doesn't have to be that cold to occur if you get wet. A lot of the sports that I participate in, whether that's fishing or kayaking, involve getting wet. And so you really need to be prepared to, to be wet and cold. So whether that's a, a splash jacket or a wetsuit, all important considerations, even, even when it's not in the below freezing temperatures. And that, that hypothermia is one of those things that if, if you've ever had it, you, you're very aware of how it affects you. Fishing for me is one of the, the ones that, that I've had frequent episodes where I lost the dexterity in my fingertips and found it very challenging to tie knots or to thread a a fishing line through the hook of a needle. And it also affects judgment. And so people make really bad decisions when they're hypothermic. So, so hypothermia is a real problem, you know, in general, it's even more of a problem when you're at altitude and it is something that that people should be aware of and, and recognize when it occurs. So moving on to another area of the environment, the water is another area we have to contend with in the outdoors, whether you are either a water enthusiast or even to a situation where you may encounter a flash flood. Talk to us about some concerns we need to think about when contending with the water. We live in a world of water, as you say, and our area of the country, we don't have to worry about oceans and tides and undercurrents and things like that, but we do spend a lot of time in rivers and the principles around water are, are very common sense principles, which is number one, you should be wearing a life jacket if you're doing anything in the water, particularly moving water like rivers but any kind of physical activity where you could be injured or potentially knocked out because a life jacket will save your life. And then I think particularly paying attention to our younger athletes and uh, people who don't know how to swim, making sure that even if it's a, a safe water situation where like it's a lake and that you're not necessarily having current issues or anything like that, that life jackets are being used and that people are always paying attention. There are different life jackets for different activities, and I would encourage you to kind of familiarize yourself with the life jacket that's recommended for your activity. One of the best examples I can give is for stand-up paddle. They make some really slick life jackets that you just wear as a waistband around your waist like a belt. And if you were to fall in, you pull a little ripcord and then you have a life jacket that's attached to you. Yeah, it was pretty sweet. My daughter and I got a chance to do some, finally got our, our first lesson in stand-up paddleboarding out in San Diego, well, not in San Diego, Los Angeles last year in one of the uh, bays over there. It was, it was a great experience. I'd love to do it again. And I know we've got some opportunities here in Missouri to do that. I know you've done that quite a bit. Yeah, great, great sport. Good for upper body strength, but also core strength and balance. For sure. For sure. I felt it afterwards. That's for sure. Yeah. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll keep talking with Dr. Andrew Gregory about wilderness medicine. Thought about a career in voiceover? Need a great cost-effective on-hold message for your organization or business? Don't know where to start? Check out The Voice Farm, your one-stop shop for voiceover needs. Check it out now by accessing The Voice Farm at voicefarmers.com and see what difference can be made with a company that is truly outside the box. 
from the voice box. Voicefarmers.com. That's voicefarmers.com. Dr. Mark Halstead here. Do you like what you're hearing on the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast? If you want to learn how your business, organization, or effort can benefit from my focused audience of professionals interested in pediatric sports medicine, connect with us and let's have a conversation. You can reach out to us at pediatricsportsmedicinepodcast.com. Make your podcast soar with the Editor Corps. Editing podcasts can be ugh, rough. Everyone knows that you'll spend at least double the time you use creating the podcast when editing it. Then there's the control freak factor and the gotta get it right the first time. Well, it's time to shove all that out the door and make your podcast soar with the Editor Corps. The Editor Corps is a talented, experienced team of podcast editors that have edited tens of thousands of hours of podcast content, and they're ready for yours now. Check out EditorCore.com because it's time to make your podcast soar. EditorCore.com. That's EditorCore.com. Welcome back to the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast. Today, we have Dr. Andrew Gregory from Vanderbilt Children's Hospital in Nashville. We've been talking wilderness medicine, and we focus so far on the environment. So we're going to move on to the creepy, crawly, and slithering things that we may encounter. Let's start with snakes, everybody's favorite. Fortunately, most of what is encountered will tend to be harmless, but what types of snakes do we have to be aware of? And certainly for me, how do we go about identifying them, and what parts of the country do we need to be worried about those things? Certainly, if you're going to spend any time in the outdoors, and particularly this time of year as things are starting to warm up, snakes are coming out of hibernation and they like to sun themselves. Because they're cold-blooded, you don't tend to see them a lot at night, but you do see them once things are starting to warm up as they come out to sunbathe. And the main snakes that we all need to be aware of are rattlesnakes, cottonmouth, water moccasins, and copperheads. And those are all the pit vipers. So when you think about snakes with with two teeth, those fangs sit in a specific part of the mouth that is attached to a poison. And they have these pits that, that only they have. And so they're very specific snakes. They certainly can cause harm if they bite you. However, most of these snakes are not aggressive snakes and they're not out to hunt humans. They're, they're out to hunt small rodents and they would only bite humans in defense. And most of the time when they, they bite humans, they're not envenomating humans. They're just biting them to get them away. The only other snake to be aware of, which is down on the coast in Florida, is the coral snake, which is a small snake and not a pit viper. And it has multiple rows of teeth, but does have poison. So one of the main messages that, that I will tell you uh, regarding snake bites is that identifying the snake is not necessary. And probably one of the biggest mistakes you can make is if you get bit by a snake, trying to then catch the snake to bring it in to show the doctor the snake that bit you because then people typically get bitten again. We don't need to know the type of snake. The antivenom is the same for all of the pit vipers. It is separate for the coral snake, but that's in a very specific area of the country. So you do get bit by a snake, and so say it is one of those types that we worry about. So what's the first thing that you should do? You mentioned not obviously going after the snake and trying to identify the snake, but what else should we do? Because I know there's certainly plenty of myths out there is what's best. Yeah, so you're exactly right. So if you do get bitten and you get bitten by a, a snake with two teeth or two fangs, that is probably a, a pit viper, and you probably do need to 
number one, get to a place where you could be treated if necessary. So getting out of the, the wilderness environment. Sometimes that's easy and sometimes that isn't. So if you're on a multi-day backpacking trip, it may be a challenge to get you out. But as far as what you can do immediately for the bite, you do want to try to get venom out of the wound if you can. And so you want to take a venom extraction kit along with you if you're going to be hiking out west or hiking in the east if it's remote so that you can do suction on the the bites to pull the venom out. You do not want to use your mouth because then you're just sucking the venom into your mouth. And there are some, some tools that, that are on the market that are not recommended. Specifically, there's a tool where you're supposed to cut an X over the, the bite to try to allow the, the, the venom to, to leak out. But all you're really doing is causing more local tissue damage. I would not recommend any of the other kind of devices that potentially are being sold other than just a suction device. That's, I think, helpful and practical kind of things. And so let's move on to other reptiles. So those with legs. So what else do we need to contend with? The only other poisonous reptile in the U.S. is the Gila monster, which is seen in the desert southwest. And I've never seen one personally, but they are very sort of striking in appearance. They have a orange coloration on their back. They're not the largest lizard by any stretch, but they're bigger than your average lizard. And, and the problem with their bite is when they bite, they tend to hang on. So they're not going to let go of you and they do have poison in their bite. So uh, number one, you, you want to try to get them off you, which is easier said than done. You don't want to stick your hand in their mouth, but you want to try to get something in there like a stick or a rock to try to open their mouth up. And then again, you're going to want to seek medical care immediately because there is poison in the bite. So how about things like spiders and scorpions? I think just like snakes, people have a, a lot of fear of spider and scorpion and tend to want to kill every spider and scorpion they see. But most spiders and scorpions are not poisonous. The, the main spiders we have to worry about in North America are the, the black widow spider and the brown recluse. And the nice thing about them is they, they both have a warning system so that you know which is which. Is which. So as you probably are aware the the brown recluse has a violin on its back, and the uh, black widow spider has a bright red mark that, that is very clear warning to you to leave me alone. As far as scorpions go, we do have small scorpions in the southeast, and they can sting you, but they tend not, not to cause any real damage. The, the big scorpions out west have more venom in their sting. So I, I do think it's good to uh, avoid scorpions and spiders, particularly if it's the poisonous ones, but they tend not to cause as much damage as a snake bite, for instance. How about moving on to plant life? What kind of things do we need to worry about there? So I don't know about you, but uh, but I am very much allergic to poison ivy. And, and I learned this when I was in the Boy Scouts, and I learned very quickly how to identify poison ivy. And the old quote is, leaves of three, let them be. Anytime I'm out hiking, which I do every week, I'm on the lookout for poison ivy. Anytime I work in my yard, I'm on the lookout for poison ivy because all you have to do is is touch it. And if you're allergic, which about 50% of us are, you will get a about a two-week skin reaction that is quite itchy and is not compatible with a good night's sleep. So I think the, the main one to be aware of is poison ivy. Having said that, there are a lot of plants out there that are poisonous. There are plenty of plants that can sting you and and make a very unpleasant reaction like a nettle. 
And, and the main thing I would tell people about plants, other than not touching poison ivy, is don't eat plants. Even if you think you know what it is, don't don't eat it because there's lots of stories of people being poisoned by eating something that they thought was something else, even causing death. So let's uh, finish up with some basic survival skills. This could be things in general that we, you may want to advise a patient about if you're considering getting more involved in wilderness activities, or maybe if you're a medical director for some type of wilderness event, or just if you personally may want to go out and start exploring the outdoors, particularly if you're doing this by yourself. So let's start with things that we need to know about for search and rescue for someone lost. Probably the, the, the best tool you can have in the wilderness is your cell phone, kind of knowing your location, where you are. The only problem with that plan is is you think your cell phone works everywhere and, and it doesn't. And so you do need to have some backup plan. Uh, one of the real challenges of search and rescue is most of the time when, when people are lost, they either don't have a phone or their phone doesn't work. Probably one of the most important things you can do before you go out on a hike or a long paddle or something like that is tell somebody your plan and let them know particularly if you're going out alone, which is not recommended. But search and rescue is, is a real challenge, and it's, it's different depending on what area of the country you're in. So in the southeast, we have a lot of caves, and that comes up. I think people are probably familiar with the, the cave rescue in Indonesia last year. Usually it's much more simple things like people getting lost and getting stuck out and getting cold and not having food and that kind of stuff. Some basic things that are worth knowing is how do you light a fire, because that's incredibly helpful for hypothermia and just kind of your general state of mind. How to collect water, so having some method of collecting and purifying water. The simplest thing is carrying an iodine tablet, but some of the water purifiers now, like the UV pen and, and filters, are really quite easy to use. And then finally, a signaling device, so having some sort of mirror that you could uh, signal for help if you are um, stuck out in the wilderness. So one of the things you learn in wilderness medicine is to have your own survival kit. So you have a kit that you put together with some matches for starting fires that are waterproof, a signaling device, some water purification system, and you stick that in a small bag. And I don't care if you're going out for a hike or a paddle or a fishing trip, skiing trip, you, you take that bag with you so you have your personal survival kit along at all times. Good stuff. So Andrew, what's your pearl about wilderness medicine for our listeners? I think the main message that, that I would give to people is to educate yourself. If you're going on a trip somewhere to an area of the country that you're not familiar with, to find out about what are the animals and plants endemic to that region that you should be concerned about encountering to make sure you visit the CDC website and see if there's any particular immunizations or medications that you should have along. I think really for anybody who's in the outdoors, having some specific training in survival and wilderness medicine would be invaluable. Fantastic. So I'd like to thank Dr. Gregory for joining me today on the podcast. It's been great having a nice chat today with you about a topic I know you have a lot of passion about. Thank you to my listeners and be sure to check out our full podcast library at pediatricsportsmedicinepodcast.com. You can stream our podcast through your favorite podcast listening app. You also can follow us on Twitter at pedsportspod. That's peds plural, P-E-D-S, sportspod. And we'd love it if you subscribe to our podcast and please leave us a review. We truly appreciate your feedback. Until next time, I'm Dr. Mark Halstead, your host, and this has been the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast.
Thank you for joining us today. We hope you will join us for future episodes. Find my entire library of episodes at pediatricsportsmedicinepodcast.com. I'm Dr. Mark Halstead, and this has been the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast.